New College, Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, Friday afternoon, November 12, 1971, Bible 324, Biblical Archaeology, beginning the second part of the course and taking up the Archaeology of the New Testament by E.M. Boycock. Now this is a considerably smaller book than Unger's book that we had for the first half. And you figure out, Mr. Mary, why a book on the archaeology of the New Testament would be shorter. Well, the New Testament is shorter, and it covers a um, much shorter period of time. You figure from the birth of Christ to the, um, well, let's say the death of the twelve apostles, it would be about a hundred years. And uh, if you figure the time it took to write it, uh, Supposing the writing began about the year 50 and was finished about the year 100, it would be about 50 years. Whereas Old Testament history uh, covers terrific expanses uh, of time, uh, so much that you can hardly even uh, figure out exactly where it begins and, and so on. So this is shorter. Now, under his own book, we used, last time I had this course on the uh, Archaeology of the New Testament is bigger than this book, but it's smaller than his book on the Old Testament. So this is um, just inevitable in the nature of the case that there is less of it. Now, there is a chapter in here on uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and um, when we get to that, if we are not terribly pressed for time, we'll uh, take up the Dead Sea Scrolls with other material beyond what's in this little book and see, it's a rather interesting subject, and see, uh, this comes in quite late in this book, it's in pages 135 and so on, the New Testament, the Dead Sea Scrolls. So we have other books in the library on reserve on the Dead Sea Scrolls. One of them is by F.S. Bruce, and another one by a man named Lassore, of course, in there in California, and we can supplement this and take up more. And Page 135 here, it mentions the scholar named John C. Creever. I'm happy to inform you he has been here and lectured at Geneva. Did you hear him when he was here? He went in college quite yesterday, but I think your mother heard him maybe, or some of your family did. John C. Creever, he was the first real scholar to um, get a look-see at the Dead Sea Scrolls, or part of them, and to um, conclude that they were genuine. Teaches in the college in Ohio, and he was here, and he had some pieces which he carefully didn't let us touch so we could look at them respectfully. But he is uh, one of the great authorities. Unfortunately, he is uh, <coughs> not a uh, Catholic or a covenant of either one, a liberal in theology, which is too bad, but uh, that's the way it is. Now, we'll go back to the beginning here of the um, Blakelock's book. Blakelock is a uh, New Zealander and is now retired and devoting himself, I guess, mostly to writing. At the beginning of this, he defines archaeology as much as other books that we have previously had did, with um, some differences. And um, that is archaeology according to Blakelock, middle of page. Five, or Roman numeral five. Archaeology is that branch of historical research 
which draws its evidence from surviving material traces and remains of past human activity. He would make archaeology a part of a branch of history, and the other authors that we had didn't do that. But uh, history is not too important. We realize that archaeology depends on not primarily on written records, but on what can be found in the soil, uh, remains, pottery, and so forth, and different things like this. Now, um, what has archaeology accomplished, according to this man? Uh, what has it accomplished, Mr. Brown, or has it accomplished anything? All right. Now he says it has pushed back the frontier of historical knowledge, so that uh, we now know, uh, let's say, uh, far beyond what the limits of what people knew a hundred years ago. It has pushed back the frontier, and. Uh, great deal of what was originally archaeology, that is, digging in the soil, turned up some or, or real historical evidence in the form of written records. All this vast stuff from Assyria and Babylon and so forth. Once that's dug up and read and, and published and indexed and translated, this becomes ordinary historical source material. But to, to find it in the first place and get it out of the ground, was archaeology. The historians can't do anything with what hasn't been discovered yet. And so um, you could say that uh, it, has, it has expanded historical knowledge by its many discoveries. Now he speaks here of New Zealand, his own homeland, and says the whole picture has been transformed in the last 10 years by the examination of the debris on the sites of the Moa hunters' camp. Now I wonder, Mr. Thompson, did you ever see a moa hunter? <laughs> Mr. Beatty, did you ever see a moa? Mr. Hess, you know what a moa is? <laughs> well, then you wouldn't know a moa hunter if you would see one. <laughs> well, Mr. Beatty, no, this is not <laughs> one more. <laughs> not a moa. <laughs> I looked this up in the dictionary. It is uh, an extinct species or class of species of birds of which the skeletons and bones and fossils are found in New Zealand. A bird that couldn't fly, it was heavy and clumsy and flightless, although it had wings of a sort, and is said to be somewhat similar to the ostrich and possibly uh, a good enough evolutionist related to the ostrich. But uh, this is the, the uh, moa, and uh, evidently New Zealand is where the moas not only lived, but also died. And there they are buried, and there their bones are found. Now, he mentions this, this picture of the prehistory of New Zealand. Now, archaeology has opened up the prehistory of North America. Incidentally, do any of you know anything about these three fellows that were, four of them rather, were arrested for on campus uh, yesterday for um, trying to sell magazines without a license. It was in the paper last night. Four fellows, two of them were 18, one was 19, and one was 21. And gave their names in some places out west, Iowa and different places in the Middle West, and said for 
arrested by the police for canvassing to get magazine subscriptions door to door without a license. But they were doing this on the Geneva campus and were put in the jail in lieu of $110 bond each. The presumed fine is $100 and court costs $11. And $111, they didn't have, none of them had it. So there they are cooling it until the Wednesday of next week when their case will come up. If they can prove they're not guilty, they get let free. And if not, they'll have to stay until $111 is paid. An interesting situation. I wondered maybe if some, they were Mormon missionaries that have been around here before trying to enlist our interest in their stuff. And Mormon, they were all of that age. That Mormons go out on the trail to promote their faith, and they call them elders, although they're still teenagers, some of them. But anyway, uh, I wonder if anybody knew anything about it. Who, who called the police? Uh, what was about it anyway? You know, Mr. Bates. Well, how could this be done so quietly that nobody knew anything about it? I was told they were sitting like sort of around the door and not really. Invading people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. See, and the police got him on this other count. Well, it's interesting. I uh, suppose I ought to be sorry for them, and maybe the CSF should send somebody to the county jail to evangelize them, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, I don't you can appoint somebody to do this. <laughs> You have a captive audience. Well, we've had the Mormons around before. This I reason I suspicious. You don't think they are? Jehovah's Witnesses? Maybe not, because they try to get into the box. What would, what would young fellows from Iowa and Wisconsin and so forth be doing in Western Pennsylvania trying to get subscriptions for magazines? They found a place where people had got money. They came to the wrong place. If there was more oil, they would go. Well, I suppose time will tell. Maybe it'll be announced at the faculty meeting today. I listen and see. All right. Now, archaeology. He mentions the um, the prehistory of Polynesia, Island. The prehistory of North America. When Columbus arrived, almost nothing was known of this. And the reason I mentioned the Mormons, not only because of this little news item, but they claim, contrary to all the evidence that there is, that um, a large segment of the American Indians arrived here about 600 B.C. from Palestine after the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians. And this is absolutely... Um, Psycho-Saranus, it's, uh, it's contrary to everything that's known about the free history of North America. <laughs> uh -huh. One
all the Spanish and everything, they worshipped them as God, thinking that was the, the great one God that they had. Yeah, this is standard stuff with them. I think it's based entirely on the dubious hearsay evidence, though. And that, no, it isn't. It isn't. What about the Southwest Arizona? Do you this? Well, all right, I don't think it supports Mormonism, though. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm willing for the Arizona Indians to have their beliefs, but... Sure. Yeah, the, uh, the um, head of the Smithsonian Institution was asked once about some of these claims, and he said, absolutely, uh, completely lacking in objective evidence. There's a written facsimile that you can see in some books of this letter. And uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they are even uh, less informed than the Mormons. There's a young married lady in one of my freshman Bible classes, Mrs. Um, Jurasco. You didn't know her at all? Puerto Rican. She she's part Irish and Puerto Rican. But uh, anyhow, she's uh, Spanish-speaking and had some difficulty with English, so she got a Spanish Bible and showed it to me. And I look at it, it's put out by the Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah. Hmm? Well, they, um, they, they do not believe that Christ is the Son of God. They believe what? Or they believe there was a man called Jesus, but they don't believe he was more than a good man. And uh, I showed this lady, I don't know Spanish very much, but I showed her in the first verse of the Gospel of John, which is, they claim that they put out their own translation of the Bible. They claim that all standard translations are corrupted and, and undependable, so they have their own. And um, they translate this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. A God. And they, that, there, was, there was in Spanish, too, with the indefinite article, and God was a small g. And uh, so I called her attention to this, and she was really surprised by this. You see, this Greek text could be translated God or a God. There's no indefinite article in Greek. But on the other hand, when you stop and think, the Gospel of John was written by a monotheist who came from the strictest monotheistic uh, theology and culture that the world has ever known, the later Judaism, then it would have to be translated God and not a God. Whatever John believed, he didn't believe in the multiplicity of God. Mr. Tennyson. They asked me because God was God was the word and the word was God, but either way, there's no no um, indefinite or definite article there. They asked and they certainly and you see the Jehovah's Witnesses find some um, obscure medieval manuscript from the 1200s that. Uh, worthless for critical study, and uh, if they find one reading on one place in this that seems to support one of their ideas, <coughs> they immediately feature this and acclaim it and, and put on it. And their show of learning impresses only people that know less than they do. It's, uh, it's strictly phony. Well, let's get back to biblical archaeology. He mentioned some other people here, um, Heinrich Schliemann, a German shoe salesman come to America who became an archaeologist and discovered the site of Troy and Mycenae in Greek and Arthur Evans about 1900 and a little after who, um, who discovered the palace of the three kings of Crete at Knossos in Crete. And uh, so this has given archaeology a good name that has the whole row of 
really outstanding achievements, not just Bible archaeology, but general archaeology. Now, the author quotes uh, Samuel Johnson, who wrote the first English dictionary. Any of you know anything about this fellow? Samuel Johnson. Well, he didn't like the Scotch, and he put a definition in this dictionary of oats. Oats is a grain used by horses in England and by men in Scotland. To which the Scotsman replied, yes, Dr. Johnson, exactly. And that's the reason why they have such fine horses in England and such fine men in Scotland. <laughs> now, uh, here is the statement that he made. What did he think he could know about the prehistory or the early history of the island of Britain? On page VI. Well, no, 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 no. This man lived when? In the, in the 1700s. Yeah, 200 years ago. And uh, almost nothing. And the uh, authentic history of Britain began with um, Julius Caesar and he, at 55 B.C. And even after that, there was a long time that almost nothing was known. And so the Anglo-Saxons, 500 A.D. in there. Now, um, Blakelock comments, this is no longer true today. Poor Samuel Johnson didn't even know it, but right under his feet there were remains of a Roman city a few feet down. And uh, under practically the house that he lived in, very near to it. And uh, much of this has been discovered since. Incidentally, World War II did more for the archaeology of London and southern England than uh, any amount of anything else could have done. Places were bombed so badly that they had to be torn down and rebuilt. Bombs beyond repair. And in doing this, of course, they would dig down deep enough to get a good base or foundation and turned up a lot of Roman ruins under the present streets of London, including, among other things, a temple to Mithras, the sun god, probably uh, built by or for Roman legionary soldiers in England. Mithras, the only serious rival that Christianity ever had in the early centuries, mysticism, and it wasn't serious enough, so Christianity won. But uh, and maybe we'll come to mysticism later. But um, uh, a great deal is known today about England, not only since the Romans came, 55 B.C., but from before the Romans came there. Although before that, there are no real written records, and what is found is cultural levels and pottery that shows certain trends and things like this. It isn't comparable to what we call history, but still a great deal is known that wasn't known before. Now, uh, he mentions, uh, this is uh, question four, that man writes history unconsciously and indelibly in more ways than one. You can sit down with a pen and paper and write history books, write a history book. But what does he mean, Mr. Brady, when he says man writes history unconsciously and indelibly in more ways than one? Well, he means that history records his own events like something that happened to him and his own people's life and all the things that he wants to do. All right, Mr. Green. Some kind of a trait. Look, I read a book on um, 
the early colonial history and Indian place names in Pennsylvania in the library. And a little poetical quotation on the title page. Our name is on your waters, and you cannot wash it out. Look at the streams in Pennsylvania that have Indian names. Susquehanna. What's this one up north here? Um, Well, one generation ago, 
or more. Uh, awakened a lot of educated people to things they hadn't known before and uh, made them archaeology conscious. Now, the mood of the 19th century versus the mood of the 20th century. This scenario, the centuries have moods. Now, what does it mean to say the mood of the 19th century and the mood of the 20th century? This is question number six. And in the book, it's on uh, page V V double R. Well, um, what is Mr. Thompson? What does he say was the mood of the 19th century? That's the 1800s. Yeah, this tradition. Now something is found in the, the 19th century following the, all the French Enlightenment and so forth was extremely skeptical of these things and tending to debunk them, disbelieve them, and discount them, and contradict them if they could, claim they were frauds, and so forth. This was a common thing. When Schliemann discovered the ancient ruins of Troy, he had a world to convince. It was hard to convince. People were sure that Homer's poems were pure fairy tales. And Schliemann proved, of course, that they did have a historical core. Not that everything in Homer is history, but surely it isn't. But the mood of the 20th of the 19th century was to question and discuss tradition, right in line with the rationalistic spirit in theology. This is the same era that debunked the, the Bible, especially the Old Testament, that held that Moses couldn't have written the books of Moses and all of this, that critical slant on the Bible. This is typical of the mood of the, of the 1800s. And now he says, over against that, it has been the experience of the 20th century, that tradition, even when embedded in myth and legend, must be handled with care and circumspection, even though you may come to say that it's not all true, and the stories have grown up around it, still there's truth in it. Now, those of you that had comparative religion will recall my comment on the birth of Buddha. If it was Buddha, yes, I think so. He, uh, was born with his mother, and then one minute later got up and waved both hands over his head and shouted, I have arrived. <laughs> now, I think that, that surely is a legend. How about George Washington in the, in the cherry tree? Well, probably in the same category. But you see, you don't question there was such a person as Buddha, and that he was important just because there are some have ridiculous legends that have grown up around his name. All right, so it must be handled with care and circumspection. And the illustrative examples given of this, Freeman's discovery of Troy and Mycenae, Arthur Evans' work in Crete, the ancient home of the Philistines, and the decipherment in 1953, less than 20 years ago, of the Linear B script. This is the writing of creeks that had been discovered that all along before, half a century before, but nobody could read it. Covered by Sir Arthur Evans. And then this has been deciphered and this is quite, quite an amazing feat. Now, um, 
Then uh, some examples in the Old Testament feel, I think we can skip this, the Old Testament, we've had it already, such as the Tel uh, el letters, the Rashama tablets, the Siloam tunnel, the Moabite stone, and so forth, of course, we just got through study. Now, uh, the archaeology of the New Testament was later in the field, and um, it lacked something that the Old Testament discoveries had. Mr. Harris? I just wanted, before we went on too far, mm-hmm. that you have any idea of methodology they use for trying to decipher some of these old things when they don't have uh, something like Rosetta Stone or something like that? Yeah, you can read this in the various books of the Thinkensis Cretan script. And uh, there's, uh, they went at it uh, mathematically, exhausting the possibilities to make a grid like a, like a big checkerboard and figure out certain signs that occur repeatedly and try to get a clue in this way. Find if you can somebody's name or something like this. And you can do the big book in the library that I had out and going to bring it up here and never brought it. Documents in Mycenae and Greek by Ventress and Chadwick. Chadwick is a professor in one of the British universities and Ventress was a bank clerk. Young fellow, but he and he's the one that figured out the, the uh, Minoan and Mycenaean script of the Cretan linear B writing and the Pylos tablets from the mainland of Greece. And for a long time, the orthodox uh, classical scholars thought it was foolishness. But finally, they had to put up the white flag and surrender. Ventus was right. And just at the height of his very promising career in this, he was killed in an auto wreck in England. And that was the end of his researches. But the other man, Chadwick, a university professor, continued it and published a number of books. And there are books that, that deal with exactly that question. I can I can bring you one and show you another day how they do this. And there are scripts that have not yet been deciphered that stand out as a challenge and a puzzle. And if you'd like to become famous, why, there's your opportunity. You just figure out the linear A script from Crete has never been decided. Dr. Cyrus Gordon of the Jewish uh, Adoptive College, he thinks it's related to Semitic languages, but he doesn't know either for sure. But anyhow, this is a um, fascinating subject. Uh, however, it's uh, nothing you can do quickly. You've got to decipher the script of an unknown language. You've got to spend your free time on it for years and then maybe not succeed. But on the other hand, it's amazing what has been done, and of course the story of it, once it's been really done and written up, is quite fascinating. Now, uh, uh, the difference between the Old Testament and the New, most of the discoveries in New Testament archaeology are little things. They give light on the Christian documents and are certainly of value from that point of view. But they aren't the earth-shaking events like the discovery of the, the uh, Rosetta Stone and the Behistun inscription and the tomb of Tutankhamun, uh, this kind of thing that were uh, such a tremendous uh, and earth-shaking magnitude. There's nothing in the field of New Testament archaeology that compares with the, with the really colossal discoveries in the Old Testament period and field. So it lacks the element of grammar uh, from that standpoint. A student told me the other day he didn't find my course in Bible 101 challenging. I said, well, it's intended to be basic and not challenging. And (laughs) you survived it, didn't you, Mr. Brown? 
Now, I think you did. I'm sure you did. Well, uh, this has its interest, and uh, the value of Blakelock's book is the human interest story that he ties in with it. But don't expect anything comparable with the discovery of King Tut's tomb. It's not, uh, well, it may happen someday, but it hasn't happened yet. Now, um, he goes on to say here, this is question 10, it's stock in trade is the humble and little thing. Scrap paper, a humble gravestone, a petty inscription, a common object, a Christian lamp that was discovered that uh, gave uh, information about the place, and a number of things like this. And on the middle of page IX here, he says the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1948. Is that the correct date for that? When were the Dead Sea Scrolls discovered? 47, and if you look on page 135 of this man's book, he says 1947, too. So this is just a clip here. It's 48. It was 47. Now, um, one more quote here from Oliver Wendell Holmes. You know who he was? Was he a chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court? He was a justice. He was a judge. An American uh, jurist. lawyer. Oliver Wendell Holmes. I believe in the state. It has fed the tribes of mankind, it has furnished them water, coal, iron, and gold. And now it is giving them truth, historic truth, the minds of which have never been opened till our time. Quite a remarkable statement, and one of the books that I had here one day, uh, no, that I couldn't get it, it's gone from the library, The Testimony of the Spade by Jeffrey Bibby, Testimony of the Spade. The Spade is the symbol of archaeology. Now then, um, the pirates. And unless we get cramped for time, we want to pass around a book here. This is um, called Everyday Life in Ancient Times, and it's simply reprints from the National Geographic magazine. And it isn't all about the biblical things either, just general archaeology, but there's a picture here showing what um, a papyrus swamp looked like in Egypt. And it has a uh, party here up to evidently duck hunting in the papyrus swamp. But these places were just buzzing with waterfowl in ancient times. They're uh, in, a, in a boat here. The, the actual boat is also made of papyrus reeds tied together. These things are sort of like some plastic. They uh, they, they don't absorb water and they don't sink. Field or, or a bog of rose that they grew this stuff in, they look like. Papyrology. Uh, this word uh, is not in the Duncan Wagner's New American Dictionary of the, Amer of the American Language. Uh, I couldn't find it. Papyrology, the science of papyrus. And the word was first used in 1898. Now, there's an amusing quote here from Macaulay, an English writer who lived uh, when about the beginning of the 1800s, and he says that uh, humor was uh, not his forte. But he, he speaks about um, how the Babylonians, lacking any convenient and practical material to write on, had to use bricks. And how a certain author was thought so much of the Babylonian king, that, the Assyrian king, that he 
published in his honor a bridge and four walls. <laughs> that, from the standpoint of Macaulay, was supposed to be uh, quite a joke, I guess. He published a bridge and four walls. Now, uh, right underneath where that bridge and four walls were, there's been a great deal found, not on papyrus, however. And uh, Blakelock says, well, Macaulay, you have to hand it to him. He was right, at least in this point, that um, uh, what these ancient people lacked was a practical and convenient material to write on. Now, who discovered papyrus and ink? These were discovered by an Egyptian whom we will call Mr. X. Um, name unknown. Mr. Man? The question on the test is something about ink written on the potsherds. Now, was that... That was, yeah. That was not in Egypt. That was in Palestine. The Lakeish letters. Oh, yes. Yeah, but, oh, yeah. They, they were written on broken dishes, which, whatever you say about them, they're cheap. And in ink, with a, with, a, with a pen of some kind. Maybe it was a fifth or a feather pen. I don't know what kind of a pen for sure, but... This was, was late, of course. The, many of the Egyptian era are much older than that. All right, uh, the uh, need for a practical and inexpensive material on which to write. Now, there's a description in here of the papyrus plant, and I understand that um, the places where this grows are today uh, greatly reduced. I don't know if any of you heard Dr. Rennick Wright had a sermon on the papyrus plant one Sabbath evening, and he had some real Christian applications to it, but he, he told about where the papyrus plant grows. And uh, it used to grow around the so-called Hula, or waters of Miram, in the northern part of the Jordan. This has all been drained by the Republic of Israel, and there'll be no more papyrus ever grow there. And um, I think in northern Egypt, it also is today practically extinct. Uh, and there is a subspecies or similar plant to it in the uh, in Upper Egypt, the southern part of Egypt, on the borders of the Sudan. So some of it still grows there. But um, evidently uh, there is some papyrus. There's a photo here of these Arab women toting bundles of papyrus, which they I don't suppose they went through to, to Nubia or Ethiopia to get them. So it must have, at the time this picture was made, at least, have grown somewhere that could be reached. How high does this plant grow? Yeah. Um, another book that I looked up in said uh, 3 to 12 feet high. But um, this book says sometimes as high as 25 feet. And what these women are carrying here, if these women are 5 feet tall, why those funnels of papyrus would be easily 12 or 15, would you say? Yeah, Mr. Mary. Well, that's the class of plants, I think. Papyrus belongs to this class. Just like crabgrass is a kind of grass. Papyrus is a kind of sedge. It's, it's a botanical term. No. It's not. It isn't. It's, it's like, you know this styrofoam stuff they used to pack uh, things in that are fragile, like uh, all the optical goods and so forth? That weighs almost nothing because it's mostly air. It's blown up with, with tiny air bubbles in the practice of, in the process of making it. But Paris is like that. It's, uh, it's chiefly little 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 cellular cells with air in them, and so uh, thing like that. If that were solid 
let's say, willow sticks or something, why those women wouldn't possibly be able to stand up under that weight. But it's not. It's, it's very light. And this is why they could bind it together and make rafts and boats of it that would float and wouldn't sink. And um, we're quite practical from this standpoint. Now, um, Pliny the Elder, a Roman um, writer, described how it was done and made it uh, crisscross. They cut out the pits out of this plant and uh, laid it out on a table and then another layer at an angle or a red angle maybe to it and pressed them and pounded them and uh, there's a little bit of um, mucilaginous juice in the thing when it's fairly fresh and uh, this comes out when you pound it or, or press it hard enough and makes the natural adhesive. So you, and then when you get through you can smooth it off with something that uh, smooths it and have a pretty fair writing material. And then uh, Blakelock uh, says that um, if kept dry it will last forever. Dampness that is the fall of a vegetable product like this, bacteria get to work on it and it goes to pieces, but if kept dry, it would last. And Claudius, Roman emperor, when did this fellow live? Well, Claudius, um, toward the end of the first century, I believe, mentioned in the, uh, in the book of Acts, the New Testament, uh, about a prophet named Agabus that predicted a worldwide famine and in a little note added there it came to pass in the days of Claudius the Roman emperor so one of the Roman emperors in the beginning of the time of Christianity he got bothered by the poor quality of the papyrus that was available in his day and issued orders from the makes them better and they actually accomplished this and so the making of papyrus was greatly improved now um uh, coming down to uh, question 19, the Arab Bedouin, are these people highly cultured? Well, they are completely illiterate, and um, they uh, have been in the past, couldn't even write their own name, and of course correspondingly ignorant of everything but their own little desert life. What did they do that ruined the tremendous quantities, Mr. James, of papyrus? Burn the nice smell. Burn them for the nice smell. Can you imagine? Just uh, probably, you know, like a little incense you can buy at the store, keeps the mosquitoes away on a, uh, or there's a match that would bother them around their campfire. Keeps the bugs away. And it had a nice sort of an uh, oriental type of smell to it. <laughs> and so they Throw it on the fire, you know, any quantity of it, uh, like it was absolutely worthless, simply used for fuel. And no doubt, uh, tremendous quantities. Who knows what the treasures there might have been discovered if they hadn't used it up in that way. I don't think this is going on anymore, but it did for a long time. And it speaks here also of, um, coming down to question 20, the... Um, Stuffed bodies of sacred crocodiles. I spent a whole hour in the library this morning trying to find the book that describes the finding of the sacred crocodile stuffed with papyrus, and I didn't find the book. Neither the papyrus nor the book. Mr. Mary? Yeah. It was scrap paper from their standpoint. They were finished with it. It was junk. And the crocodile was a god and had to be treated with uh, divine honors and properly embalmed and buried in a crocodile cemetery. 
And um, so uh, this is the Egyptian pagan religion, of course. And this archaeologist was looking for papyrus scrolls and thought he knew where to find some and dug into this sandy soil and came on this cemetery of embalmed crocodiles. And he was so mad he picked one up by the tail and whammed it down on the ground and it broke in two and he found it was fair stuffed with rolls of papyrus just used for stuffing. And um, so uh, all the rest of them there, there were many of them. I suppose there were scores of them. They were all stuffed with, with papyrus. And not very ancient, it was from the Greek period after Alexander the Great, but they got uh, a lot of stuff out of that. And these were non-literary papyri. Now what's the literary papyrus and what's the non-literary? Does this mean you make litter the landscape with it? Not literary, Inventories, accounts, um, bills, marked paid, and this kind of thing. And literary would be a copy, say, of uh, one of Plato's dialogues or uh, of some book of the Bible or of one of Homer's poems or something of this sort. Non-literary would also include letters or correspondence uh, people, either the original letter or a copy that had been kept of it. And uh, most of the papyri that are discovered are non-literary, but also a great number of literary papyri have been discovered. Which of these would be of more importance and value to uh, scholarly study? Literary or non-literary? Well, yeah, it depends on what you're interested in, of course. If you're interested in recovering the text of the Lost Dialogue of Plato or something and can find it or find part of it, this would be just what you want. On the other hand, if you're trying to build up a total image of the people of that time and see how they lived and what they did and so forth, the non-literary maybe would tell you better what the price of a dozen eggs was and some things of this kind than the literary. All right, now, a great heaps of this stuff have been recovered, and he says, comparable to the sacks of waste paper sent to a paper mill for crying. During World War II, um, my kids and I um, saved a little money out in Kansas by collecting scrap iron and taking it into a dealer and selling it so much a pound. It was a great need for iron, of course, for the war. And also, scrap paper. And uh, the place would take the scrap paper, newspapers, magazines, and they'd bail it. And the guy there told me a story that really made my blood run cold. He said one of these bales, you know, produced by a big hydraulic baler, a big press, and then bound with the wires clear around tight. When opened in Chicago, had the body of a man in it. Somebody had gone to sleep in this on a cold night with all this paper in this bin, and um, perhaps drunk, I don't know, but anyhow, I'd gone to sleep in there, and uh, he didn't wake up when they bailed the thing, so he got bailed. And when they found him, he was clear dead. But, uh, and uh, this same man said, you'd be surprised at the Bibles you find in scrap paper that people throw away. He said he was a Christian believer, and he had saved out several good Bibles that had been thrown away with scrap paper and had given them to people that would be glad to have them and want them to read and said, you can't imagine the, the, the number of not just worn-out Bibles, but good Bibles that people had, had thrown away and chucked away. Well, the papyrus that's been discovered is comparable to this bailed uh, miscellaneous trash uh, printed paper that we have so much of at the present day. Now, we didn't get quite through with this, but uh, we'll go on from there. And uh, Now, look, if there's no school Monday, 
uh, we will didn't even write it up there. Well, we will take up the rest of this and depart on the nativity on Monday, and if there's no school Monday, we'll take it up Wednesday.